Welcome to Perplexagogy, the podcast for people perplexed about pedagogy. Oh, I nearly said it right this time. Uh, my name's Nicola Fern and I'm a digital learning developer at Durham University and I'm joined by my colleagues. I'm Sam Nolan, I'm an education developer at Durham University. Hi, I'm Rochelle O'Brien, I'm a senior digital learning designer at Durham University. Hello, and I'm Mark, and I'm the same one of those as Rochelle. Uh, this month we've got a guest here to help us pick apart our topic, Alistair Brown, who's an assistant professor of digital humanities and modern literature in the Department of English Studies here at Durham. Hi, thank you for inviting me onto this uh, podcast with the name I will not try to pronounce. Uh, it's really, really great to be here. And um, Yes, I'm based in the English department at Durham University, um, but I also have some experience at the Open University as well uh, in relation to this area, so it's fantastic to be uh, part of the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Um, I say, when you say this area, well, we've we've picked a bit of a beast of a topic this time, I think. Um, It feels like it's topical, but also very confusing, so it's very apt. Um, And like a many-headed hydra, it might just bite you if you don't think it through. Um, whether you want to call it hybrid, high flex, dual mode, whatever you want to call it, we're talking about mixing online and real world teaching. So dual mode at Durham University is the term we use to describe delivering a class that's live to people who are in the same room as you and also others joining remotely, however that may be done. Um, what are some some of the others that we've, we've read about? So hybrid, I think, is a common one. Um, and a lot of places are using hybrid to mean dual mode. Um, I think the challenge with using the word hybrid is that it is also occasionally used to mean blended learning, which refers to whether or not technology is used in the classroom. Um, And that is where it becomes challenging because these definitions are across modes and also ways of teaching, um, which isn't always very clear. I don't know about others. How have others found these definitions used? There's a, the one one that I came across, because um, I think obviously everyone thinks about that this is being like a very topical subject and something that's been um, kind of, I suppose, forced on us in a lot of ways over the last couple of years by everything that's been going on with sort of pandemics and stuff. Um, but one paper that I read uh, was from 2014. So it's talking about it in very much a, a, an earlier context, a, pr- a pre-COVID um and and arguably like pre-decent software for doing this kind of thing and it was talking about synchromodal classes and it was talking about it from the perspective of um there were several different models they discussed but the first one that they discussed was basically having a lecturer who had to teach two different cohorts of people the same stuff and instead of what he would have done before which was physically go to each of the two campuses that were about an hour apart at twice during a week instead of doing that he wanted to go to one place and deliver the class to the same people from at both locations so it basically had two classrooms at two different campuses that were linked by video conferencing software and then the tutor would go to one college campus one week and then the other college campus the next week um, so that the both groups got to experience some in-person teaching. So um, being a digital humanist, I did the thing that digital humanists tend to do, uh, which is to go on Twitter and pretend to be working. Um, but I did a little uh, trawl to think about some of the ways in which this language is actually being used um, and, and looked at how the terms are circulating over the last seven days. Uh, and 
pretty decisively concluded that dual mode is very definitely a Durham thing. Uh, there were nine tweets over the last seven days that related to uh, dual mode teaching, uh, many of which linked back to uh, the excellent work done by someone in the room. In fact, uh, linked back to Rochelle's uh, work on this. Um, so well done, Rochelle. You were, you were there at the center of the dual mode Twitter thing. Um, I also looked at Hyflex. Uh, I don't know. Do you think Hyflex would be higher or lower? We could kind of play a game of family fortunes here. Do you think Hyflex High was higher or lower than seven tweets, uh, than nine tweets? I higher. think higher. Higher. Yeah, higher, higher. Hyflex was 30 tweets uh, linked to Hyflex teaching. Um, but interestingly, all of those, I think, apart from one, were from users in the US. So if that tells us anything statistical, uh, or statistically significant, it would be that it's uh, more a thing on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, and then hybrid, I guess you'd say higher. higher yeah, again. higher. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there were actually over a thousand tweets. It wow. actually ran out of room uh, in the program I was using to capture all the tweets over the last seven days. Um, and definitely more universal, uh, both US, UK, and indeed uh, globally, uh, using the term hybrid. Uh, although, as um, Rochelle said earlier, it covers other contexts of the term. So everything from schools that are kind of switching between face-to-face -to, -face to online delivery, um, all the way up to our context in, in higher education. So uh, it does seem on the basis that Twitter gets anything right at all, uh, hybrid is the, the dominant term at the moment. And uh, do you know if they're using that term to mean the same stuff or are they using it in different in different contexts? Is it is it as is it as much of a muddle as it feels like? Inevitably, it was a bit of a muddle, uh, as you you know, it could be blended everything from blended learning uh, in a university context to different ways in which schools or colleges are working uh, to you know uh, webinars and conferences and things like that that have a hybrid delivery mode. Um, but even when I kind of cleaned up some of the data, um, it still did seem broadly to be focused around this idea of bringing participants concurrently from physical face-to-face -face environments into conjunction with online participants. So insofar as Twitter is ever ahead of the curve, you know, it may be that we're starting to see a definition emerge from that muddy water. So I was part of a conference last week, um, which was about hybrid learning. And I had a really interesting conversation about the difference in definitions and why they use hybrid. This is at the University of Nottingham and why they don't use high flex. So there seems to be in the sector a bit of nervousness around the idea of high flex because of the flexibility it affords and how much flexibility we realistically can give. Um, so I'm wondering if that is representative in what you saw when you were looking um, as well, because I know you mentioned that you're seeing high flex a lot more sort of in America. Um, and I imagine that there is more of a push there to have the flexibility, which is the thing that differentiates just to sort of go back a, a step there. So the difference between hybrid and high flex, hybrid, um, well, high flex takes the principles of hybrid learning, but also gives flexibility to the students on how they can access their learning. So what that means is that they could wake up one day and decide today I'm going to be an online student or they could wake up another day and decide that they're going to go into class and also gives 
a lot more flexibility around how they access their learning. A lot of the push towards that in the papers that I read around it where it was about changing demographics like amongst the student body so um having that high flex model that enables a student to um really properly flex their learning experience around their personal or work schedule really appeals to maybe students who are retraining or students who have children or other commitments that are outside of their university uh, life. Um, and I think it's a real boon to that. And I think it's something that if if we're looking at the way that the way that people are approaching education now as being more of a lifelong thing where we might get people coming back to do different degrees later on in their life. Um it could be a real a real advantage if it's possible to offer that. Yeah, ju- just in that space, um, I think that you're absolutely right that, that COVID perhaps has hastened this. I mean, there are lots of universities that have offered those kinds of things, not necessarily in the UK. And it, it, I think it comes down to how what's the driver, what's the USP for your university? And, um, you know, I think, you know, we would all, none of us would disagree that social mobility afforded by degrees is really important and creating pathways for people to do this is critical. Um, and I wonder whether kind of COVID has kicked the doors open on that a little bit as well, you know, in terms of more places engaging with that. That said, the downside to sort of high flex model uh, in particular is that you, you know, design the learning objects potentially differently for the online and face-to-face students. It isn't just stick a device in a room. Um, it's, it's, it's more work than that. On the other hand, um, it's, you know, potentially... Uh, really powerful, and I guess that's just a challenge to to um, to think about. You know, what's the USP versus what's the what's the um, workload, and it and it does come down to that in some senses. Um, uh, and how do you create create opportunities for that to occur? Well, I, I really think Sam's point is important here. That um, thinking about the wider framework in which a lot of these changes have taken place. Uh, and the fact that part of that framework is obviously COVID and this emergency situation. Um, but I think also part of it is around the kind of marketization of higher education and that, that kind of consumer model of the student. And I think it's been quite striking the ways in which, you know, the government has, has pitched online as if online must be an inferior alternative and face-to-face must always be the superior, the superior model, which, of course, you know, we all know when we develop online appropriately, isn't necessarily the case. And um, I do feel at the moment as if hybrid is a kind of attempt to have the best of both worlds, uh, a kind of efficiency saving, because as Sam said, you don't have to duplicate the effort in terms of dividing a bespoke online session and another bespoke face-to-face session, Um, but also in terms of propping up consumer satisfaction, um, because it kind of puts face-to-face as being the priority and especially if you think that kind of online experience in the hybrid model is a, a slightly weaker experience. Um, it, it puts online firmly in its place as, as the backup, as a secondary option. So I do think this is kind of fitting into the idea of, you know, ideology shaping pedagogy, that hybrid is a kind of uh, answer to um, the, the government's proposed solution or the idealised solution of face-to-face as the best thing for students in this moment. I was reading a paper that uh, is talking about a university that shifted towards active learning 
um, it was before the pandemic that they did it. It was it was quite a fortuitous timing for them. They had um, they had a new campus built and it had no lecture theatres. Um, and the thing that that sort of sparked out at me from what you said was that um, the students d- did express uh, they they did some they did some um, focus groups with these students about about the research questions they were looking at. And the students did come up with things that that indicated that they were having that that kind of market marketized view of education um, in terms of things like if if they felt that the online materials weren't that educationally valid, they wouldn't do them. And on conversely, if all of the material was online, they felt why did they need to go to the face to face classes? So it, it it either encouraged them to do all the online stuff and not go to face-to-face classes or do all the online stuff and maybe not go to all of the classes if they didn't feel like they were getting anything from it. Um, One of the things that I was thinking from all of these papers that I read was that actually making the reasons for pedagogical decisions accessible to students might actually deal with some of these concerns. In other words, a a lot of them might think that, well, you know, doing, doing say, fun activities, does that teach me anything? Do, why do I need to do all these group work things? Um, making that transparent transparency in terms of the pedagogy. Teaching them how we make decisions about learning and why those decisions are useful to them. Might just give them the skills they need to have a, a lifelong approach to learning to their benefit you know some of the reasons for this stuff aren't exactly obvious if you were to consider the history of the lecture lectures were invented as a money-saving device really they invented so you can get them the maximum number of bums on seats and and teach as many people as you can it wasn't it's a pedagogical choice but it wasn't made for the most uh how can i put this you know it was made for reasons of, a, of, of partly of a financial nature and i think that's we forget that that's sort of true always in this kind of space um you know that that's a difficulty isn't it that, that actually these these choices that we make around the pedagogies that we use we'd like to use as a as a as an educational developer i'd like to use the best pedagogy i could possibly find that's going to be the most effective for student learning but we're also operating under lots of external conditions you know what i mean i'm sitting in a particular room with a particular setup and i've got to to make that work so um when do we think that dual mode is appropriate as a definition do we need do we need a shared vocabulary for this or is it okay that it's all just a bit of i a don't mess? think we're going to come up with a shared vocabulary i think so many people have come up with different words for the same thing and the same words for different things that we're not going to organize all that now i think if if when you start anything if you like you know if we mean at say durham Dual mode is when you're doing both synchronous things at the same time. Blended is when you move from one to the other. And um, high flex is when you give students the option of which route they pick. Then that would work for us. But we, there's no way we can expect anybody else to, to to adopt that because they've all got their own way of doing things. Yeah, I think I think we probably need to ensure that we are just very explicit when we talk about these things so that when we're having a conversation about it, we are um, cognizant of the context that we are using at that time. And also that as students are aware of what the options are, that, you know, if they can't make it, 
in, and I mean, the options aren't necessarily to do a synchronous remote thing instead of the synchronous in-person thing. There could be asynchronous options or, you know, we can provide all of these different alternatives um, and the students can pick and choose which ones are most appropriate for them. Perhaps, I mean, you know, that might be one route, but as long as they're aware that what the different routes are and also what the different advantages, disadvantages and what kind of engagements they need to undertake in order to have a good chance of meeting the learning outcomes, which is always the point we're working towards, then I think we're doing the best job we can. And yeah, and having coming up with a sort of crib sheet of this is what this word means in our context or in this university, and this is the word we use and so on, and making sure people have access to that. Is, I don't, is, is what we can do, but I don't think we can go around organising people and saying these are what these terms mean, you know, you can, because you can just spend ages just <laughs> arguing about definitions. But to me, actually, these questions or these terms around hybrid teaching or high flex or whatever else we want to use, you know, they're, they're quite administrative terms that we, we maybe need more from a teaching point of view than are beneficial from a learning point of view. And I think from my perspective or from a student perspective, the most important term actually is the one Mark used, which was alternative. And the question of whether these modes of teaching, particularly if you're in a position of being the online student, are you being offered this teaching as an alternative to something that you might otherwise do face-to-face, -face, which is going to give you exactly the same experience and learning outcomes? Um, is it an equivalent? So it's something that is similar, but at the same time, removed from and, and not quite the same experience or is it something that's a supplement as in you would normally attend face-to-face -face, but there's a little bonus of being able to attend some online stuff as well um, and I think to me again coming back to the idea of the, the student as consumer understanding exactly how this is being pitched to me that that is really important that students understand you know if we're we're, we're kind of rudimentarily patching together some of this pedagogy around this new technology, um, they might not in the first instance get it as an equivalent to just being online, to be online. Um, it, it might just be a kind of a bit of a bonus or a backup, but not necessarily, you know, the same fully rounded experience that they will get ordinarily. And I think that pitch to students is is really, really important. Do we think that, that, that what's happened during the pandemic has tainted the idea of this for students? And if so, what can we do about that? I feel they're all sick of Zoom. <laughs> I think having spent, having spent 26 hours last week back on Zoom uh, and uh, teaching students with webcams off and, you know, kind of reluctant to be there, uh, I feel like the the idea of presence, physical presence, is really, import, really important to them. A couple of things there, I think. One that Alistair raised about equivalence and... I don't think we need to be beholden to the kind of option, the, 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 the sort of the goal of providing an equivalent experience to all students. Because people, students have never had equivalent experiences to each other. You know, some are going to be able to afford more textbooks than another one. Somebody's going to find the acoustics in a lecture room easier to contend with than others. We talked about auditory processing disorder at work last week. You know, students who've got that might not might struggle in a lecture room where the others might not. Um, you know, that they, they might be more tired because they've got further to travel in the morning. So students have never had an equivalent experience. What we're and 
there is, we want to strive for equity, but we're never going to get there entirely because everybody's going to be coming to their learning experience, their learning situation with a different set of backgrounds and things, affordances, whatever. What we need to do is give everybody a, an equal chance of acquiring those that learning. There's some might be more fun for others, it might be more participative for others, but as long as they're all getting to the point where they can achieve to an equal extent, then that's what we're aiming for. And so the idea that some students might be losing out by only being remote because they don't have that sense of, I don't know, being in the same room with somebody else. Well, no, they won't. They won't be. They won't feel maybe the same sense of connection in that way. But they can still get connection, a different sort of connection, in a different way by exchanging ideas online, chatting to each other through text, um, and those sorts of things. So I think that's that's what we're looking for. And I think that ties in with your question, Nick, about have students been given maybe short change because of the pandemic. I think. Yes, they have, because we've not gone into providing them with the, uh, the learning experiences they need with the, best, with the most appropriate mindset. Because what we've been trying to do is replicate the experience of being in a lecture room in a 50-minute synchronous sitting there listening to somebody in an online environment, which has meant rather than sitting in a room and walking from one room to another room and sitting with different students or sitting at the back and sitting at the front and and having, a, um, I don't know, different spaces to sit in. Instead, they've always been in their room, on their bed, with their laptop, sitting in a Zoom meeting, which is just the same again, a day in, day out. And, you know, then they're not going to feel that's equivalent. They're not going to feel that's the same. We've tried to recreate the wrong things instead of thinking from scratch about how do we go about doing that. And that's maybe you know, the, the, the weakest part of the whole dual mode idea is that by giving students, by, by what you're trying to do is replicate the wrong things. You're trying to replicate a, an experience which can't be replicated. And so therefore, why not try a different approach completely? And I think that's maybe where, you know, the, the people have been put off remote learning because it's, it's been Zoom after Zoom after Zoom, like Alice was saying. And I think that's, that's because we've got, um, a situation where we've been in emergency mode this whole time. Mm. We need to get out of emergency mode and get into, okay, what does this look like going forward mode? So I, I completely agree with what you're saying. I think one of the challenges around dual mode, however, and hybrid, high flex, whatever it is that you want to refer to it as, I think it's a mode that is new. Um, and as a result of that, there isn't a huge amount of research around it and there isn't a huge amount of case studies or experience that people have. So whereas usually we could fall back on research and go and see what other people are doing to see how we plan it and how we carry it out, um, it's difficult to do that. And I think that in itself makes it even more challenging because as a mode, it's kind of underdefined. I don't think the idea of it is new. Um, I think I think that it's possibly that what was so the earliest research I found was from kind of 2014, 2010, yeah, that sort of time, and and much before that, the technology just wasn't out there for it. Like there was kind of 
web conferencing software, but it could support like four video feeds at a time. So it wasn't at a, a mature enough point for this to be really viable um, outside of, say, audio-only streams. Or, I mean, if you really want to go go for kind of remote learning as a, you know, a, a thing, you've got obviously not just the OU's original correspondence courses, but things like the School of the Air in Australia, which delivered everything via, like, CB radio <laughs> and books. Um, and that goes back decades um i yeah i think i think the type of the type of remote stuff that we're talking about has probably only really become viable in the last 10 years because before that the technology was just too hard for most people to want to bother with and expensive uh, on that note of um the kind of history of the technology and, and it only just becoming viable um a few years ago and i think it was 20 14. So getting on for your 10 years ago, uh, before we had the, the usable technology, uh, I did a project at the Open University. It was a, a pilot project um, on what we called, and we're back to terms now, simultaneous equivalent synchronous tuition, <laughs> where um, basically we had, we had students in continental Europe um, and students in the UK, and um, we're delivering face-to-face -face sessions in the UK but uh, dialed in those continental European students um, through Blackboard Illuminate. But we had a really, really, really rudimentary setup um, with just a, a USB microphone and um, a webcam facing the tutor. Um, and one of the surprising things was it, it did kind of work. It did bring those students together, uh, particularly Valuably, I think, for the continental European students who wouldn't otherwise have had that opportunity. So this is where, you know, that idea of this being not just uh, not not even an alternative or equivalent, but it was a supplement. It was something they wouldn't have got otherwise. Um, that was on top of their kind of core tuition, um, and it did work to integrate them with the with the face to face students. Um, and they felt one of the things they they reported was they felt a sense of presence and were reminded that. The tutor and other students were there, which is especially important for for distance learners, obviously. But I think over the last two years has obviously proved important for for online learners at, at conventional brick universities as well. Um, so yeah, I think I, I'm interested to wonder what we would have done with that project had it been now when we have these more sophisticated technologies. But even then, with just the one USB mic and a one webcam, it, it could still work to perform some benefit. So we touched upon kind of viability and the technology getting to a point where these things are actually becoming useful on a broader basis. But um, what what is it viable for? What How do we think about that viability? What does it allow us to do now? You know, there's this idea of presence. There's, I mean, there are different forms of presence. One of them is the sense of presence of the teacher presence, that we're getting that, that connection with somebody that is a, a kind of, uh, expert in there, not kind of, sorry. We get, <laughs> they are experts, I will rephrase that. We're getting that connection with somebody who's an expert in their field, who's presenting their research. There's something energizing about that. And I think, although it's quite valid to say lectures were just a way to provide apprenticeships cheaply by getting lots of bums on seats instead of just one to one, which is the ideal mode, there is still something I think that is 
ineffable, indefinable, just um, excellent about seeing that person and being enlivened by their ideas. And I think that sense of teacher presence and giving people that liveness sometimes is really, really useful. Yes, you can do most of it through video and you can communicate through uh, recordings or books or whatever, but just hearing somebody talk live, I think, gives you a sense of connection that you don't have otherwise. So I think that liveness is still useful having occasionally. And there's also the, the, te- the student-to-student presence. Now, the way for people in the room to feel, e- to feel each other... <laughs> oh, God, I should have thought about how I was going to phrase that better. But the, 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 but the way for students in the room to f- feel that connection with each other, you know, that we, we always get that, I think. We put people in a room together, give them an opportunity to talk to each other, which we rarely do, but we should do more of. Then you sense, get that sense of building a, a community, building a connection with, between them. Um, online, you can do that as well quite easily. If you do it properly, you have collaboration. You might have a VR or a virtual world environment where people can connect to each other. You might have video conferencing where people can see each other. Um, and that is also important for bringing that kind of cohesion, which is a core part of learning. I think dual mode, when it's done effectively, if you can do it, can bring those two cohorts together to create a unified experience. If you've got the technology, if you've got a way to represent those people remotely to the people in that room and vice versa, then you've expanded that sense of cohesion to bring everybody in that cohort together rather than just having them two separate strands, the online people and the the blended people. I think that's its value. I think that's its strength. And when we and the, the improvements that we're seeing all the time with technology to enable people to do that, I think, you know, should be should be utilized as much as we can. That's I think its key strength. I think it's possibly its only strength in and only rationale for doing dual mode. But I think that's enough for us to attempt it at least occasionally with our students. Well, I entirely agree with um with both those points emphasizing the importance of community and the importance of presence. Um, but I think I'd add a third dimension to that axis, which, which follows from those first two ones, which is also pr- pressure and a productive kind of pressure, because having those synchronous events and having those live events where students are together, whether it's online or face-to-face or a mix of the two, and they're with, with other students and they're with the lecturer in a particular moment, you know, it. it it, it, it requires a degree of preparation. It requires students to ideally, you know, have done some reading or have thought about some problems that are circulated beforehand, um, just in case, you know, they, they get put on the spot in, in a benevolent kind of way. If they get asked to contribute or collaborate, you know, they need to know they're prepared. So to me, it's about that pressure of knowing you're going to be in that live environment, um, providing structure, for your working week, you know, providing a rationale for, in my case, you know, it's reading the novel or reading um, reading the poem that's going to be discussed um, in other disciplines. It'll be other other types of preparation, but uh, that that idea of hybrid is an excuse almost to elicit these higher level things. I think that's important. Do we want to come round to this as being basically? I I don't know. I mean, the research that I read basically said that it it was good. If you do it right, the problem is need. The problem is need having having an environment where you can do it right. 
But then how do you how do you actually make sure that that's effective? How do you design that? Um, all of them talked about kind of making sure to to plan it. They all they they were all very very keen on the idea that you needed to have a, a enough time to plan it all, and it shouldn't shouldn't be done in a hurry. Basically, which is like the opposite of where we've been for the last two years. Um, and and that you needed to be able to work with students and students' needs and make sure that you design lots of interactivity in and make it non-trans, you know, not not particularly transmissive only, you know, so that there might be certain elements of kind of lecturing in there, but but those are balanced out with lots of other activities as well that people can do. Um and but I I don't know, I don't think they all came up with just like one kind of approach that was consistent. Yeah, yeah. And how big were the classes they were looking at? Were they big ones? I mean Oh, they were every every class size from from kind of an entire university that basically ditched all of their lecture halls and just went with like active blended learning as an approach for the whole university to um kind of six people in a course. So there was a whole big range. Um, there was um, some, there was one paper, let me see if I can find oh, the University of Highlands and Islands. They just put out, it was just a web page that I read, and they've got some recommendations for uh, what, they, what they're calling their um, synchronous online teaching. Um, and they recommend a maximum of 25 to 30 students for synchronous lecture-based sessions that have some interactivity in them. Um, and then beyond that, if your class is more than, say, 30 people, they basically recommend you use a flipped classroom model um, instead of doing kind of synchronous sessions um, to ensure that everyone's actually got an opportunity to speak. So myself and Candice did some research back in December of 2020 around dual mode, and this is specifically at Durham University. So we observed dual mode teaching on 12 different occasions where we had one staff member in the classroom and another staff member who joined online so that we were getting an experience across both. Um, And we also held a student focus group. Um, From carrying out that research, we identified six different issues and then went on to provide recommendations for them. So kind kind of similar to what Nick was saying and what's being reflected in the research, but I think when you kind of combine the recommendations that we were providing with the findings from the student focus group, um, the most important thing was the importance of good audio um, and the ability for them to feel involved. So that might include things like the tutor in the room, drawing them into the conversation rather than referring just to the class and having them sit in listening online um, So levels of interaction, as well as their ability to actually hear what was going on. I think one of the things that came out of it, though, was like preparedness to actually teach in this way and teach sort of online and in the classroom simultaneously. Although it may not be a new area of research, it might be something that people have looked at pre-pandemic and looked at in other contexts. I think in terms of actually being in a classroom it is very new to a lot of people Um, and that requirement to move between technology and interact with somebody live in a classroom and online at the same time was really new for a lot of people and 
some people found that enjoyable to get stuck into and get their heads around whereas some people found that really stressful because you're having to deal with things like issues with sound on the fly and it even came down to things that you wouldn't necessarily think it think about so one of the really big challenges that we came across was the shape of rooms which might sound really daft but there's one specific room on campus that has like a a ceiling that's got two different layers and the acoustics in that room made it next to impossible to hear anything online um, versus when you were actually in the room because the sound was just being really, really distorted by the way that the ceiling was built Um, and things as well like having power supply. So if you have a requirement for um, like students in the classroom, for example, to also join the online meeting, which is another conversation um how do you make sure that everybody in the classroom has power for their laptop and in an older building you don't have plug sockets so there was one tutor in particular that was taking extension leads and then they were taking a microphone and they were taking all sorts of kit with them to the room just so that they could make sure that they were delivering a good experience for everybody involved and I think that's really challenging and I think as much as the research is giving a good picture of how this might look, I don't know whether it discusses like the reality of it and the reality of carrying all of this kit to the classroom with you so that you can then start teaching because that in itself takes time and it takes time to get your head around and it takes time to set up and afterwards take the classroom apart again before you're able to leave. Um, so yeah, that that's kind of where we got to with the report and as I say we made recommendations based on the issues that were identified so that people could make the best of it um, and hopefully move forward from it and make it a a bit of an easier experience. I think think this is it reflects the difference between a study or something that's going to be written up as a paper or some advice somewhere um, that's that's being planned meticulously that's got like organizational budgetary support that's got um you know the the time to really seriously plan and think about it and consider the pedagogy and consider the tech and all of that at the same time probably leads to a much better educational experience than just something that we think oh we'll have a go at this or maybe we can introduce that do you see what i mean I think I think one thing that did come out of all of the um, papers that I read was that you had a huge amount of extra cognitive load for the lecturer when you're combining um, synchronously people who were in the room and people who were not in the room. And a few of them ended up having um, kind of, uh, they call them various things, tech navigators or... Um, you know, assistants, helpers, people who could monitor back channels, people who could make sure the kit was working, etc., to lift that cognitive load from the lecturer and enable them to really focus on the teaching aspect uh, of things. And I think that's something that's really important because like, when you're when you're trying to juggle too much at once, something's going to suffer. Um, and and also for students as well. So if if they're in the room, um. But they're also looking at the lecturer. They are seeing people on a screen. They're seeing another screen that's got presentation notes on it. So I, I think it's 
it's probably challenging from both ends. I don't, I, I don't know about I don't know about practical, but on that issue of cognitive load, um, I think it's a really important one. Um, but also temporal load as well. The, the the amount of time it takes to get the kit set up, um, and certainly uh, in English studies, you know, we made the decision. I think it was a a very wise one that um, we just wouldn't use the owls for one hour or as it is now you know 45 minutes of tutorial teaching um, because the time it takes to set up and navigate any issues you would spend far far longer you know sorting the uh, the problems than actually holding the conversation um, so we don't do, use it in that context but it's uh, it's more appropriate in a two-hour session in a two-hour seminar where you can uh, plan accordingly and have a bit of a, a buffer um, and also have more diverse modes of interaction in a way that isn't as confusing as if you were trying to pack them all into the space of uh, 45 minutes. So I was quite, I was quite interested in what uh, Nick was saying, summarizing the, the research findings, saying that this kind of works across all levels, um, because it doesn't feel like that's quite the experience, at least from our point of view on the ground. Uh, it's more appropriate to some group sizes and some kind of timescales than, than to others. I think, you know, it's like the, the classification of early adopters and late adopters. Some universities have been early adopters. They're probably the ones doing all the research and getting it published. And for a lot of unis, they, they, this is a new thing for them. It's only been maybe just since the pandemic that they've been doing blended learning and online seminars and all that sort of stuff. So for if you're in that scenario, you're having to learn how to video conference and do dual mode and do your teaching all at once. Whereas for a lot of people, video conferencing is, you know, it's it's common or garden mode for them. And so acquiring one or two extra skills on top of that is is minimal. Whereas for people that are doing it all for new, it's must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, I think I think it's um comes down to what I was saying before. I think when you've got an active research project there's an awful lot of um incentive for it to go right and to put as much um effort and um resource in as you can to make that happen okay so we've talked about some of the good bits um what what about the bad bits what what um when when do we think that this concept this idea of dual mode teaching can be the worst of both worlds so I guess I guess there's a question in my mind about about this kind of live dual mode is when is it distracting from for students and when is it actually the the artifice of doing it is making it worse for both for either or both sets of students if you know what I mean you know if you're trying to run a seminar with two students online and six students in the room let's say um, who's having the best experience and is there anything in that space we can do, or, or I mean, that's one example. But I, I, I use. But when, when is it not the right thing to do? I guess is the question I have for students. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question, Sam. I think it. I mean, if I've understood correctly, essentially, are we so distracted by the technology and the things that you need to sort of put time into and get right that? It's actually taken away from, like, the learning experience. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't really meaning the technology at all. I was meaning more the student experience of learning. So, because that's kind of, if you think about it, if you've got a lecture and you're the one student online, and the the academic yeah. is doing a didactic lecture, that probably doesn't make much difference, really. But if they're doing an interactive lecture, 
how do they include you? I guess is the question, you know what I mean? So does does this kind of stuff make those who are less technologically savvy, perhaps as you point, you know, more inclined to do didactic teaching? That's a that's a worry, I think, for me about it, you know, because the people I know who rave about um, dual mode teaching are tend to be lecturers who don't do as much of the active stuff as others now maybe i'm maybe uh, the people i've talked to so maybe that's not representative um that's a question i have in my mind about this whole thing is is does trying to accommodate everybody mean that you don't go to the pedagogical places which might actually might be the most beneficial for students they might not like it that doesn't that's not to say that they would enjoy what you're doing necessarily at the, at the time they might appreciate it in the long run but does it force you into more kind of constrained ways of thinking i guess is, is yeah i i agree I, I think i would be very similar in that kind of situation where you just kind of lose sight of innovating or trying new things because you're trying to cope and i guess that that's probably a, the way that a lot of people have been feeling over the past two years given what's been happening in the world as well it's not just a case of this situation is something new and exciting. It's a case of this is a situation where we have to cope and we have to do something and suddenly the focus has shifted and how do we then refocus and shift it back and make it something that is exciting, an exciting challenge rather than something that's really quite nerve-wracking, especially when you're dealing in technology that, is potentially outside of your comfort zone. This is, to me, this is leading into the um, long-term kind of implications around equality and diversity and inclusion um, that we've kind of alluded to already in thinking about the, the question about alternative versus supplementary teaching and what type of teaching this is. Um, because it does feel to me, and, and Nick alluded this as well, when thinking about whether a student might prefer to be online because they don't have to get out of bed. I mean, you know, if you have a student with a particular disability, like something like, say, generalised anxiety disorder, and it may feel, for them point of view, understandably easier to be online rather than having to be present in a room with people. But whether that's better for them in the long term in terms of developing their resilience and supporting them ultimately into, you know, a workplace, for example, where they might not have such reasonable adjustments put in place for them, that's a, a different question. And it feels like these issues put some very charged and challenging burdens onto the teacher to decide what constitutes a, a legitimate or illegitimate or problematic reason to, to be online and how one student's preference or need to be online impinges upon the learning outcomes of those who are face-to-face. -face. And obviously we're not, we're not there really in, in having engaged with these questions because we've been in crisis mode at the moment. Um, but it does feel to me like these are really, really important ones to be asking, even at this stage as we emerge into the into the light. I guess the other side of that as well is that you're also having to ask yourself those questions. It's not just about asking the questions on behalf of the students. It's asking the questions of yourself as the person who is an educator and saying, OK, I've got these things that I I should deliver. Am I in? The right frame of mind to deliver them or again I, I might be generalizing there but that's certainly the experience that I've had with you know workload pressures and 
different changing circumstances and things like that it it's felt a lot more like I don't know as, as an educator I'm on display um and I, I, I guess that is kind of because people are in my house looking at my webcam and seeing my you know spare bedroom and all of those kind of things but it's it's like how much can I give to this and the people who are I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the people who are delivering the education or or the learning or whatever it is that is being delivered are potentially the people that also need the flexibility as well as the flexibility they're trying to give to the students and how does that marry up one other structural thing that occurs to me and this might perhaps be a long-term benefit um is that it's perhaps breaking down that division between teaching and research which was always a bit artificial but nevertheless was in place partly because of you know uh, demands around timetabling and space and things and certainly one of the things we I think we've increasingly discovered is that by doing research activities things like conferences things like seminars online you can accommodate students including undergraduate students who would previously not have been able to attend either because of cost or simply because the room wasn't big enough and I think institutionally that might be one of the big benefits is that our research activities that kind of have previously gone below the radar, certainly of undergraduate students, can become available to them, um, not just through hybrid, but through things like podcasting, through things like Zoom, Zoom conferences and things like that as well. But um, it does feel like that may be one positive that can definitively emerge for institutions. Especially in, a, in an environment where um, some of them are maybe losing money. <laughs> and maybe want to find different ways of retaining courses that otherwise might not be able to be offered before before the pandemic there were there were a number of institutions like the open university and, and several others who who engaged you know in online learning and some you know we did it we did it at durham with with some of our programs but now of course it's it's become more normalized and i wonder how many universities will try to pursue development of online courses, potentially development of hybrid courses, not necessarily, perhaps for good reasons, perhaps not, I'm not going to comment on that, but, but you know, that's a, that's an interesting thing too, because we've, we're, we've got the, the level of the student, the level of the teacher, and what about the level of the, of the, the institution of the, you know, and, and that, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because I suspect that the, the, the genie is out of the bottle on, on this um, to a certain extent, because the majority of of academic staff have, have engaged, and I, and I wonder what the, the 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 policy makers, decision makers, think about that. That's an interesting question in my mind. And, and dare I say it, coming out of a pandemic, also perhaps the it heralds the end of the packing as many students as you possibly can into one room and hoping that not everyone gets sick if someone comes in with a massive cold. You know, um, I think. In addition to that, we've got issues around environmentalism and and you know you know moving everyone towards net zero. Is it reasonable to expect people to travel long distances all the time when we can perhaps facilitate people accessing courses from further afield without having to incur the environmental cost of travel, the environmental cost of rooms and buildings and all everything that goes alongside that as well. No, I think that's a really good point. I think everybody goes on about face-to-face as being the, you know, the epitome, the acme of um, 
of education, but that's there are more and more issues that I think we're observing with that. The lack of equity with face to face, the you know the, the maybe the, the the pointlessness of a purely transmission model just sitting in the same room when somebody's just talking at you for fifty minutes. You know what's the point of being there if you're not doing anything? And then and then ultimately, yeah, that environmental cost um, is is again has got to be more and more part of how we plan our education. So yeah, I think face to face is great. It does create that sense of cohesion. But and and that is that there is some sound pedagogical reasons for having that sense of cohesion between people. But that shouldn't be every week, every session, every learning encounter is in that mode. There are lots of different modes that are more equitable and less damaging environmentally and we should be considering more and more of them as we everybody should be considering more and more of them as we um, you know as, as the world falls apart around us yeah i mean i agree i mean i think also if you think about it um you know the ac access to speakers as well you know getting the best voices around the table is always was a challenge um you know in terms of putting conferences together but to be able to you, you can now you know go to a conference and hear from people you you may never heard from before um, and, and that that's very powerful too, you know, in terms of the continuing debate. So including both the students and, you know, more voices from from the sort of academic sphere is, is brilliant too. So I can see that being a very powerful outcome from 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 all this. So, um, okay, I think I think what we want to do is perhaps whip round everyone in the room, virtual room, and ask, could dual mode be here to stay? And if so, what do we want to retain about it? So I'm going to go to Alistair first, because I'm mean. <laughs> um, I'm going to say I think it's like the Matrix, where if you think about the Matrix, you know, Neo has, Neo has this choice of taking the red pill or the blue pill. And at that point, it's really, really simple. You're either online or you're face-to-face. -face. And then as the series goes on, it gets increasingly blurry, the lines between the two, and eventually... Um, Agent Smith, who should be this computer simulation, somehow becomes embodied in the real world, and Neo somehow becomes this uh, physical being in the computer world. And it's all very uncanny and very weird for the audience to get their heads around. And I do sort of feel like our our online students who are kind of zooming in to this hybrid mode, they are kind of the Agent Smiths in the room, uh, albeit without the cool shades. And just like the Matrix ended up becoming a bit of a, a parody of itself, uh, I suspect we're kind of going to end up in an environment where we do do one thing or the other, the red pill or the blue pill, um, but not try to, to swallow both simultaneously. Uh, sorry, that's an extended metaphor, but, you know, I'm an English scholar, so uh, that's kind of what you should expect, I guess. So I think oh, it's so hard to follow that. Um, I, I do think it... Mm, yeah, I, I think it's around to stay because I think from a sustainability perspective and also from a an inclusion perspective and giving students opportunities to access information in ways that suits them, which I think, to be honest, is something over time that we need to pay more attention to. Um, I, I think it's beneficial. And I guess that kind of answers the the bits that I'd want to retain is the that that ability to give students the choice yeah i i tend to agree with rochelle i think i think it probably is here to stay i think that from an institutional point of view there have been investments made that probably aren't gonna 
be unmade um, and not to use them would seem churlish. But I do think, uh, like Rochelle says, it comes down to inclusion and choice. And I think increasingly students will demand choice in how they access their learning material and how they engage with their learning. I do think that the best way to do that, to make it work, is to make that pedagogy that's being used accessible, open and transparent. I am an advocate of the idea that students should be taught how to learn and and why we do certain things. I think if we can bring more of an understanding of pedagogy to a broader audience, we might end up with better education at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, I I sort of think that, you know, universities are like different pebbles on a beach. They're all different shapes and sizes. And, and I think that to say it will, I think it will be around on the beach somewhere. I think it'll depend on each university's take on what it what it sees the benefits of it for, both in a kind of both both from a kind of a financial point of view, but also from a diversification point of view. And there's all kinds of you know motivations there. So I think it will. I think there is space for it on the beach. I think it will be there, but I think it it will depend upon you know, how different institutions decide, what different institutions use to prioritise that and to, to bring it to bear. So, yes, yes, it will be there somewhere. Um, will it be everywhere? Uh, that I kind of doubt. Um, but I do think it will be, be, it's something that's that's around now. And, and I just hope that when it's used, it's used to allow everyone to have an equitable experience. That's my big, my big hmm with it is, you know, I want everyone to, to to be able to have the best learning experience they can um, and have access to that. You know, I believe that, that if it's used for social mobility, for diversifying the student body, for all kinds of reasons like that, like we've talked about, it's a brilliant idea. But, you know, I, but but at the same time, it has to be, it has to involve really solid pedagogies that, that drive it. And so, yes, it will be there somewhere. Um, so I'm not quite a red pill or a blue pill. I'm somewhere in the middle. I agree. I think, yeah, with with a lot of what's said, I mean, yeah, there are a lot of pebbles on the beach and some of them are red pebbles and some of them are blue pebbles and some will be swallowing the red pebble. And No, hang on. I'm getting my metaphors mixed up. Let's start again. Um, so I think what we're looking at, what people are exploring are there are loads of different modes of teaching. So there's online synchronous uh, you know, uh, offline synchronous, off-campus, asynchronous, uh, or online, whatever. And I think you'll people can mix and match all of those modes depending on what's most suitable for their students, what are most stu- what's most suitable for their subject discipline, whatever, and pick and choose. None of them necessarily will be necessary. All of them will add to the experience, and it's up to the student to pick and choose which of those opportunities throughout a course are the most relevant for them and for as long as they can get to what they need to know by the end of the course then that's great and I think individually a synchronous online mode is a great one I think synchronous offline mode in a classroom together is a great one Um, but I can't see any rationale for having both of those things occurring at the same time and I think 
when we get to a point where people can see that it's actually a, a menu of lots and lots of different options, none of them are better than another, let's put them together in, in an order that's most, or a sequence that's most relevant for you, um, then one of them will probably fall out, and that will be, let's have two different modes at the same time, because I don't think necessarily that's the making the best of either mode. And so, I, yeah, I think equity and giving people choice and flexibility and all of those things, but not synchronous offline and online simultaneously because I can't see any benefit to that specifically. Which moves us on to my tips. The tips that I've come up with, I've got three. Um, they're fairly broad. So the first one is uh, design for inclusion. So that's making sure that students in and out of the classroom have a voice and can take part, preferably in the same way, um, it, by which I mean if students in class and out of class can both say type questions because there are benefits to students in class from being able to type questions as well. Um, have some ground rules. So having it so that people have to raise their hand before speaking, whether they're in the classroom or whether they're uh, virtual. So having that hand raising thing going on before speaking, because otherwise people in the room might have an easier job of interacting than people who are online only. Um, also things like in-person attendees muting their microphones. So if they are uh, in the call kind of as well as being uh, in the room, uh, it prevents sort of microphone feedback. And make it interactive. So you have questions, use polling, whiteboards, et cetera, for interaction, and make sure that all the students can contribute. And I suppose if you want a free fourth one, come and see the designers because, you know, the digital in designers can help you do this in the best way possible for your students. Well, I think you can agree that that was a conversation. I, I don't I don't know. Uh, I, yeah, it seemed like one to me. But anyway, I think we're done. So without further ado, we will say goodbye. So I have been Nicola Fern. You can get me on Twitter at Nicola Fern. Yes, that has changed. And on the whole, I've been Mark Childs, and my Twitter handle is at Mark Childs. I'm, I'm Sam Nolan, uh, and I've, I've been Sam Nolan, I hope I'm going to continue to be Sam Nolan, uh, and my Twitter handle is at Sam J. Nolan. Uh, and I've been Alistair Brown, mainly in real life, uh, not just in The Matrix, but if you want to catch me on Twitter, uh, I'm Ali Brown 18 And I think I'm finishing out, so I'm Rochelle O'Brien, and I have been for the entirety of this podcast, and my Twitter handle is like the matrix it's at rochelle e o'brien and i'll still be very impressed if you can find me <laughs> <laughs>